It was supposed to be here. Johann Otto Poulter was a German merchant and amateur ocean explorer sailing around the 14th parallel north, just to the east of the Lesser Antilles, or in the vicinity of Barbados, on the outskirts of the Caribbean Sea. He had made several voyages to the location, but this fifth one in 1904 was likely to be his last. Twenty years earlier, in 1884, he had discovered a beautiful, undisturbed island here that was like something out of a storybook. The northern reaches were dominated by large, majestic mountains that sloped down to the gentle, fertile plains in the south. While the eastern coast was pounded by relentless breakers, the Leeward Islands were the picture of lazy, tropical peace. To top it all off, the island was populated by a gentle native people who, in Poulter's words, go about naked as God created them and are of good stature. Surprised to have discovered such a gem in such a well-trafficked region, and at such a late date, Poulter resolved to name the island after his country's greatest philosopher, Immanuel Kant, calling the place Kantia. Making note of his findings, he carried on with his commercial duties before returning to Germany. In that age of imperial nationalism, Poulter's discovery was of some interest to the Kaiser, the emperor of Germany, and Poulter resolved to return to Kantia and formally claim it for the Reich. The trouble was that when Poulter returned, the island was nowhere to be found just the rolling waves of the Caribbean where paradise was meant to be. Frustrated but determined, Poulter returned a total of four times before finally having to admit defeat in 1904. Embarrassed, and perhaps something of a joke among the seafaring community of his day, Poulter's bizarre ordeal was not so unique in history as it might seem. He, as so many perplexed mariners before him, had encountered a phantom island. You're listening to The Inglenook, a show about some of history's greatest stories. As always, I'm your host, Logan East. Today's episode explores a mysterious and recurrent phenomenon in the annals of oceanic navigation, phantom islands. Almost as long as sailors have been charting the waves, there have been reports of islands, reefs, and atolls that, upon later inspection, seem not to have existed at all. How and why these islands come to populate maps and dreams varies considerably across time, place, and circumstance, but the pattern is always a fascinating one. In almost all cases, the people who discover these islands, or claim their existence, seem to have sincerely believed that they were where they said they were, often retelling detailed stories of their experiences there. While the majority of Phantom Island cases involve the passing of small, nondescript islands that turned out not to be, whether from coordinate mistakes, tricks of the eye, or temporary shifts of pumice and seaweed, there are other cases that persistently puzzle readers. If the islands described did not exist, then what on earth did the reporters experience? Were they lying for personal reasons, or did they have an encounter that can never be understood? With these questions in mind, we shall venture to some of these islands of legend to see what all the fuss was about. First on the list is a little place called St. Brendan's Island. St. Brendan's Island stands out for its unusual longevity, its repeated sightings across centuries, and for its mysterious reputation for wandering the seas, shrouded in fickle fog banks. 
St. Brendan, also known as St. Brendan the Navigator, is one of the most famous of the legendary early Irish monks who sailed the seas in all directions looking to preach the gospel and establish far-flung monasteries. Details on Brendan's life are scarce and come primarily from monastic histories and genealogies that came centuries after his own day. Still, we know that Brendan was born in the late 5th century in southwest Ireland, the same century that St. Patrick and other missionaries were first spreading Christianity throughout the land. Known as one of the Twelve Apostles of Ireland, Brendan was trained and educated for the early Irish priesthood. Thereafter, he was a leading missionary who set off on voyages to establish monasteries for the growth of the faith. At first, these voyages took him to various parts of the British Isles. Irish monks tended to found monasteries on islands just off the coast owing to their relative safety from attack, and Brendan did so on the Aran Islands off the Scottish coast, later going as far as France. But this is where the story leaves the rails. The story of our interest comes from the text Voyage of St. Brendan the Abbot, the earliest manuscript of which comes from around the year 900, or about 350 years after Brendan's life. Brendan, it is said, was made aware by his fellow monk of the apparent existence of a promised land, perhaps the lost Garden of Eden, intended for those who live a true Christian life, and which was also supposed to be an island in the Atlantic. Very convenient. In the story, Brendan selects a team of 14 monks, prepares by fasting, and constructs a boat of sticks and animal hides. He is also joined by three others who insist on tagging along, though he warns them against the decision. They will all end up dying or being left behind on the trip. The crew then embarks on a seven-year voyage around the Atlantic, where they encounter many strange sights reminiscent of Homer's Odyssey. They encounter an island of sheep, one occupied by demons, and another inhabited by a cloister of mute monks. Perhaps the strangest episode is when the crew goes ashore on what they believe to be an island, but that is actually the back of an enormous fish, which the author names Jasconius. When a fire is lit, the island begins to tremble as the great fish is awoken, and the monks must head back to sea. Eventually, they find the apparent promised land, onto which a number of the monks go ashore. Overcome by the beauties and wonders of the heavenly island, Brendan and his companions stay there for what seemed to be two weeks, but which is experienced by those left in the boat as a year. The sea-bound monks were kept away by a cloud of dense fog, Nevertheless, the reunited monks returned to Ireland satisfied by the promise of paradise. The story was extremely popular and circulated in several Latin variations across Europe, leading to many alternate ideas of where St. Brendan's Island was supposed to be. Some people today maintain the belief that Brendan and his monks were the first Europeans to reach North America. For our interests, however, the most common purported and reported location of the island was somewhere west of the Canary Islands, which themselves are west of the North African coast, but which have long been occupied by Spain. Though the island occasionally appeared on speculative maps of the Atlantic, no serious reports of someone locating the island popped up again until the Age of Exploration. 
One of the earliest was made by a Portuguese seafarer who reported to Prince Henry the Navigator in the mid-1400s that he had found it, but was prevented from landing by bad weather. Henry apparently sent him back in search of it, but the man never returned from sea. There were a number of sightings throughout the 1500s and 1600s when navigation around the Canaries and across the Atlantic increased dramatically. The pattern was consistent. Sea captains would report seeing an island in the distance which they believed to be one of the Canaries, but as they sailed toward it, the island would be gone in the morning and the real Canaries would then be visible further away. Other versions involve people on the western Canaries spotting the island, complete with mountains, forests, and streams, from a distance through a telescope, but that it would disappear the next day. Such sightings continued into the 1700s, and a few attempts were made to locate the island directly, but all failed, and most people stopped believing in a real St. Brendan's Island. Given its mythical origins, such an island probably never existed but it hardly stands alone as an example of a mystical isle. Like St. Brendan's, the next phantom island emerges from Irish myth. If you were to look at sea charts of the northeastern Atlantic from the 1300s down to 1873, it was possible to find a mysterious blotch west or southwest of Ireland called variously High Brazil, O Brazil, or simply Brazil, and that's Brazil spelt with an S, not a Z. Despite the similarity, the island's origin bears no relation to the modern nation of Brazil, which was founded centuries after the island's appearance on maps and named for the Brazil wood found there. High Brazil, instead, originates in uncertain Irish mythology, perhaps related in some ways to the idea of St. Brendan's Island. The belief in High Brazil seems to have originated both on the western and southern coasts of Ireland, where local traditions insisted on the existence of an island miles offshore that was visible for only one day every seven years. At all other times, it was shrouded in fog and, based on some tellings, would move from place to place. While such a notion seems unbelievable on its face today, an attitude only reinforced by the availability of global satellite imagery, the possibility was taken very seriously for centuries. Phantom islands like Brazil, and even St. Brendan's, populated maps throughout the Renaissance that were the cutting edge of navigational technology for the day. One such example comes from Abraham Ortelius's Teatrum Orbis Terrarum, credited as the first atlas of the world in 1570. His map of the world featured a number of phantom islands and places both Brazil and St. Brendan's Island out to the west of Ireland. This presence caused many early seafaring explorers from the 1300s through the Age of Exploration to search in vain for the island. As with St. Brendan's, voyagers and mapmakers began to seriously doubt the island's existence during the 1700s, when the regularity and volume of sea traffic made it unlikely that such an island could exist where it was supposed to without being encountered. Maps in this century still included Brazil, but took to calling it either the imaginary island or the Rock of Brazil. 
Nevertheless, it kept its ghostly presence on some charts until its final appearance in 1873 on the British Admiralty chart. Even as cartographers had finally had enough of the elusive landmark, there were still local reports of its sighting in Ireland as late as the 1870s, at least according to late 19th century folklorists. According to the 1888 book Irish Wonders, residents of Ballycotton on the coast of southern Ireland had reported seeing the island emerge far out at sea right in the location where they claimed their best fishing spot to be. The island, as told by them, bears a striking resemblance to the one described by Mr. Poulter as Contia in the Caribbean. It rose prominently out of the sea to form a mountain on one side that sloped down to gentle plains on the opposite. Though rocky in some places, the mountainous side was coated in thick forests, while the coastal plains were painted in verdant meadows. Naturally intrigued, the fishermen set out in their boats to investigate. But as they drew nearer, the island began to fade gradually, until finally it had disappeared altogether. Shocked by this group experience, the townspeople of Ballycotton were convinced that they had encountered the fabled Enchanted Island, known elsewhere as Brazil. In their understanding, the island was not a normal island, clearly. Not only did it appear once every several years, it also roamed the waves, never staying in one location and always out of the reach of curious mariners. Based on the obvious similarities, I have to imagine that the story of St. Brendan's and Brazil, or the Enchanted Island, are linked somehow in their ancient murky origins. Put alongside Poulter's Contia, these islands all fit one model pattern of a phantom island, an island claimed to be seen by many, but hardly, if ever, reached or interacted with, a kind of wandering mirage. Perhaps there was something to St. Brendan's Gisconius. Whatever the explanation, it's not the only sort of phantom island out there. Let us now turn our attention to a few other kinds of elusive rocks. In the age of discovery, when explorers and mariners were charting new courses across the waves, a few obvious questions emerged among sailors and cartographers alike. One of these questions asked what landscapes and peoples resided in the blank parts of the map, in terra incognita. For most places, finding the answer was but a matter of time and effort even while speculative bookmakers filled the void with all manner of wild tales from cyclops to one-legged giants. But for the far polar reaches, answers were more distant and less likely. Icy and inhospitable conditions around the poles made expeditions to the far north and south impossible given the methods available in the 15 or 1600s. The existence of a southern polar continent would remain a mystery for centuries. But a secondary question also arose at this juncture. Why did compasses point northward in the first place? That was half of what made it a pole, after all. This is a question that still flummoxes observant schoolchildren today, but even the learned of the Middle Ages knew that it had something to do with magnetism. The hypothetical solution to both of these problems came with our next phantom island, Rupus Nigra, or the Black Rock. The proposed existence of a massive black rock 
was first indicated in a lost book of discoveries from the late Middle Ages, but its contents were known in the educated circles of the late 1500s and early 1600s, circles that included men like the Flemish mapmaker Gerardus Mercator and the English polymath occultist John Dee. The basic idea was simple. Magnets were attracted to iron ore, which was most commonly found in igneous rock formations. One of the best known mineral sources of iron in the day was magnetite, then called black rock, or in Latin, rupus nigra. D, repeating the earlier lost source, suggested that the black rock island could be found in the midst of a whirlpool sea that was fed by the world's four northmost seas. It was somehow imagined that the waters were sucked into the depths of the earth at the base of the black rock. Maps from the period, most notably Mercator's, depict the imposing black rock island in an arctic sea, while others simply portray a blank island of magnets. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty attractive to me. The purported volcanic sources of the magnetite body even prompted fictional speculation of a massive volcano at the North Pole by Jules Verne in the mid-19th century. Nor was this explanation as ridiculous as it might sound to the modern ear. The scientific consensus today is that Earth's geomagnetic poles are determined by the arrangement of iron alloys in the planet's molten outer core. Given the circulation of these molten metals, the location of the geomagnetic poles moves over time and does not correspond precisely to the planet's geographic poles. The first European to record reaching the northern magnetic pole was James Clark Ross in 1831. At that time, the north magnetic pole was situated in the Arctic northern islands of modern-day Canada much farther south of the geographic pole that one might expect. Since then, the northern magnetic pole has migrated northward toward the geographic pole, though it remains off-center. Nevertheless, Rupus Nigra, like the mythical Northwest Passage, remains an intriguing notion from the early days of polar exploration. While there are countless other phantom islands between the 1600s and the modern era that we might explore later, I think it best to finish with one of the most interesting phantom islands of the early modern period, the Isle of Demons. This story involves the joining of two separate plot lines. The concept of an island of demons first came to cartography in the early 1400s with the appearance of the island of Satanases which roughly means the island of devils or satans, a terrifying island. The island began appearing to the distant west of Portugal alongside other phantom islands such as the island of Antilia or the island of seven cities. As the island reappeared on more maps throughout the 1400s, cities were added to the island. How people came to be aware of these cities, I have no idea. Likewise, how the idea of these islands entered the European cartographic world is unknown, though many theories argue that they were the legacies of earlier European voyages to the New World that were only poorly remembered by the 15th century. I find this explanation attractive. One such explanation posits that the islands are the legacy of Norse accounts of the New World and their accounts of the Skraelings, the Norse term for the Native Americans. 
Whatever their origin, the islands disappeared from maps following Columbus's voyage in 1492, suggesting that his discoveries disproved their existence in the middle of the Atlantic. Nevertheless, the notion of an island of demons haunted by beasts and spirits persisted, moving northwest off the coast of Canada where adventurous fishermen were eagerly harvesting the newly discovered Grand Banks fisheries. Maps from the period even depict winged monsters flying around an enormous island east of the mouth of the St. Lawrence River, which I hope I don't need to tell you is not there today, unless one thinks of Newfoundland as being an island of winged monsters. In one of France's early attempts to create a permanent colony in what is now Canada along the St. Lawrence River, King Francois I assigned the mission to the experienced but impetuous Jacques Cartier and the dutiful military commander and nobleman Jean-Francois de la Roque de Roberval. Again, you will have to forgive my very English tongue. The king's sister and queen of Navarre, Marguerite de Navarre, recorded one colorful event from Roberval's voyage in her collection of stories, the Heptameron, which is, by the way, a very interesting collection that anyone interested in this kind of stuff should check out. Again, that's the Heptameron. It's a collection of about 70 short stories from the Middle Ages. Roberval had evidently brought his young and unmarried kinswoman with him, Marguerite de Roberval herself a noblewoman, and not to be confused with Marguerite of Navarre, who's doing the telling. Marguerite de Roberval evidently had an affair with a young man on board, though whether he was a crew member or a nobleman is disputed, which greatly angered the pious Jean-Francois. In the original telling, Jean-Francois ordered the male lover to be marooned on what was believed to be the Island of Demons, off the Canadian coast, but Marguerite insisted on accompanying him, and her maidservant was left with them too. I have to wonder if the maidservant really wanted to go or if she was dragged along. In later tellings, Marguerite was forced onto the island with her maidservant, and the male lover joined them. In any case, the three castaways were left on the desert island while the ship carried on with her ill-fated mission. The trio was left on the island for several years. Both the lover and the maidservant ultimately died, and, after some time, Marguerite gave birth to a child fathered by her companion that also died from malnutrition. Marguerite herself only managed to survive by hunting wild animals. Eventually, and miraculously, Marguerite was found and rescued by Basque fishermen who returned her to France, likely to the surprise of Jean-Francois. There is no record that the two ever spoke again, but both did survive for quite a number of years in France. We know today that no gigantic island of demons exists, but all signs indicate that the story of Marguerite stranding there was true in its essentials, and that she was likely abandoned on one of the minuscule islands along the Quebec coastline, with Harrington Harbor today claiming the current title. While it is perhaps easy to imagine early explorers and mapmakers believing in mystical yet fictional islands, and while the stories from the early centuries of exploration are sometimes the most enchanting, the phenomenon of phantom islands carried on well into the 20th century, though often under very different circumstances. In the future, we may dig into some of those stories, but that is for another day.
For now, if you've enjoyed this episode of The Angle Nook, be sure to like and subscribe. And until next time, have a good one.